He farms 40 acres in the small town of Selma, California, and he's just published what may be the best history of the Second World War that you will ever read. Victor Davis Hanson joining us today. Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge, I'm Peter Robinson. A classicist and historian, Victor Davis Hanson is a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, where he serves as editor of Strategica, a journal of military history and contemporary conflict. Dr. Hanson is the author of many books, including the classic study of the Peloponnesian War, A War Like No Other. Dr. Hanson's newest book, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. Victor, welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, let's begin at the beginning. This S, the Second World Wars, why is there a plural in the title? I think for two reasons. One is that from 1939, when Germany divided up Poland with the Soviet Union till April of 41, there was a Polish war, there was a Norwegian war, there was a Danish war, there was a Low Country war, there was a French war, there was the Blitz, there was the Yugoslavian war, there was a Greek war. And all of those together really weren't called the Second World Wars or World War II. They were seen as isolated border blitzkriegs in which Germany, with the exception of the Blitz, won every one of them. And then something weird happened in 1941. Germany preempted and invaded its de facto ally, the Soviet Union, on June 22nd, 1941. Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, the Philippines, and uh, Malaysia and Singapore on the next day and brought Japan in the war, not just against us, but against Britain, too. And then nobody thought on December 11th, Italy and Germany would declare war on us. And suddenly, these border wars that nobody really knew what they were were renamed the Second World War and because it really was in Asia and in North Africa, even in the Americas, in the sense of off the coast of South America, and, and there was a submarine campaign, and suddenly they were plural. And then the other thing was, of course, nobody had ever fought a war where it was so disparate. Disparate, I mean, you're fighting in the desert in armor. You're under 500 feet of water in the North Atlantic. You're 20,000 feet above Germany in a, um, British bomber, you're fighting in Burma, uh, you're one of the 15 million people that were probably killed in China. So it was so disconnected. What did somebody who was fighting in Bulgaria have, uh, ha have to do with the Japanese fighting in China? And yet, nominally, they were on the same Axis side. So it's, it was trying to capture that ambiguity. It's not a monolithic, easily comprehended war. Mm. How it began. I'm quoting again from the, the Second World Wars. The Axis powers were completely ill-prepared to win the war. That's your quotation. Yeah. And I, by the way, I have to say, one of the pleasures, pleasures is too small a word, one of, the, um, one of the important aspects of the book is that even somebody who's read a fair amount of the Second, I'm no military historian, but I've read a fair amount, there's an insight or a fresh perspective on every page and uh, so I come to this, I'm giving you a little more setup for this first question because it's so striking to me that if, you're, if you've read what I've read and you're of my generation, you grew up thinking that the Germans were 
a military machine yeah. and they were much to be feared. And you say the Axis powers were completely ill-prepared to win the war. Hitler, from the get-go, didn't know quite what he was doing. Is that your, What's the argument there? The argument was that if you're Japan and you've modernized and rearmed in the 1930s, then you're very powerful vis-a-vis -vis Southeast Asia or Indonesia or China. Or if you're Italy, maybe you have more power than Somalia. Or if you're Germany and you have good roads and you have sources of supplies, you can run over your neighbors. If you preempt, all of these were surprise attacks. But if you want to fight a global war, which, as I said, 1941, that's what their arrogance led them into. Right. And it's going to be an existential war, and that's a fancy term for just saying you're going to you have to destroy the enemy, not have an armistice like World War I. Then you have to be able to reach the homeland of the enemy. And once the Soviets moved most of their industry across the Urals, Germany had no ability to get to them. From the very get-go, neither Japan nor Germany could reach Detroit. And even during the Blitz of late 1940, the is the bombing attack bombing over London. of London, there was greater Spitfire production, their, their signature fighter plane, than there was BF-109, Germany's best fighter plane. So what I'm getting at is, if you want to start a global war, and they started it, and attack these countries, then you better have a four-engine bomber, or if you're Germany, you better have an aircraft carrier fleet. They had neither. Japan did not have a four-acre. And what did they spend their money on? The V-2 and the V-1, which in terms of how many marks were necessary to deliver a pound of explosive, were about 30 times more expensive than not only uh, conventional bombing, which the Allies had four-engine bombers when the war started, both Britain and the United States, but even the B-29 program or the atomic bomb, they were as expensive or more expensive, and yet the latter really paid dividends. Right. So they didn't spend their money wisely, and they lived in a world of fantasy and romance. And after 1941, it caught up to them. All right. I want to return to that fantasy and romance. That's the Axis powers. Here, here are the Allies. Why the Western world chose to tear itself apart in 1939 is not a story so much of accidents, miscalculations, and overreactions as of the carefully considered decisions to ignore, appease, or collaborate with Nazi Germany by nations that had the resources and knowledge to do otherwise. Yeah. Close quote. Explain that. The United States in World War I had delivered two million troops within 18 months to the soil of France and didn't lose one. They had that ability, believe it or not, in 1941, but even 40, if they had rearmed a little bit in the 30s. Britain uh, started to rearm in 1938 and 39, and they really got going. And it was so successful that when the war started, Germany didn't realize that they were almost comparable in, in fighter production. But deterrence doesn't do you any good unless the enemy knows that. Germany still thought that this was Britain of 1935 mm -hmm. and not 39. In the case of the Soviet Union, Hitler himself said, had they told me they have already 2,000 T-34 tanks, which were better than every class of German tank, I wouldn't have invaded. What I'm getting at is that something shouldn't have happened. And by that, I mean, if you take the assets of Britain and France alone in 1940, they were greater than Germany's. When Germany invaded France, they had less tanks, their air forces were no better, and they had less fewer men than the democracies. Had the United States had a non-aggression pact or even a, an alliance with France 
and delivered soldiers there, Germany would have never invaded. Had Britain rearmed a little bit earlier and France a little bit earlier, they wouldn't have invaded. And if the Soviet Union had have not signed an aggression, non-aggression pact with Germany and assured it, there would be no Eastern Front, as was true in World War I, Germany would have never gone west. So it took Soviet collusion, American indifference or isolation, and British and French appeasement in the 30s to convince Germany of something that they should have never been convinced of, i.e. that they thought they were stronger militarily in terms of manpower and in terms of industrial capacity. They were not only not stronger than the eventual allies of the Soviet Union, United States, and Britain, they weren't even stronger than the two original allies of Britain and France. Mm -hmm. They had one thing going for them, and that is they looked at World War I as a tragedy that could be replayed with different results. In other words, if you were growing up in Germany in the 1920s and the word Great War came, it was we should have won that. We were on their soil and we were stabbed in the back, so the myth went. But we were on the offensive and no Allied soldier ever set foot in Deutschland. If you were in the Allies, it was we never want the Somme. We can't ever get back to the Verdun. We won, but the price was we too won. high. We won. It was just so terrible. There were the war, brilliant war poets. Uh, they, if you were in uh, the Netherlands, you, they renamed destroyers. They didn't use that term to fleet leaders. They thought it was too bellicose. If you were in France, you couldn't talk about they shall not pass at Verdun. The Germany was bragging on their defeat, and the Allies were ashamed of their victory. You quote Churchill, quote, this is Churchill now, German rearmament could have been prevented without the loss of a single life. It was not time that was lacking, meaning it was will that was lacking, right? Yes, it was will. I mean, so what is so, in the early chapters, as you describe how it began, it's so chilling and so hard to believe, but you argue it so compellingly, that the Second World War was a result of fantasy, willful it fantasy it was. on both sides. It was. I, the Allies didn't realize their own capabilities. So they were talking in 1941, the United States, of maybe building a, a four-engine bomber, a B-17, which had been in production for maybe once every two days. They didn't realize that within three years they could build a better B-24 in one an hour. And they built uh, more airframes than all of the other allies and enemies combined. Their GDP at the end of the year, the American GDP was larger than anybody else in the war put together. So they didn't understand fully their capability and their potential, and they underestimated their power, and the Axis always overestimated their capability. And so war is a laboratory, and what it does is it says, these are realities, and you have impressions about realities that are often false. So war is unnecessary because if everybody just had deterrence and they knew exactly what everybody in this room, their, their relative capability is, you wouldn't fight, but fights take place. To discover to discover who's fine. So after 65 million people are killed, we come to the conclusion in 1945, wow, the Soviet Union, the United States, and Great Britain were much stronger than the Axis, which was clearly discoverable in 1939 and even 41. Got it. You make the point the Axis is, is dominant right up through 1941 or so. Yeah. And tides shift. The Second World War is at the beginning of the war, the Axis powers appeared resolute, determined, and calculating under the leadership of strongmen. But by early 1943, the very opposite had proven true. So let's take, let's take briefly, you have a whole book here on it, but briefly, the first phase 
How do the Germans do all that they do so quickly? There's a moment when they seem yes, indomitable. Abs absolutely. We've got to remember one thing, that the Allied coalition of very um, disparate allies, I mean, British imperialism, American democracy, and Soviet communism, right. they all have one thing in common. They were either surprise attacked themselves or one of their allies, in the case of Poland and Britain, Britain right. so that brings them in. So they don't... What I'm getting at is a lot of their victories were incumbent upon attacking they, meaning the Axis, unarmed or poorly armed adversaries, and they were surprise attacked. This applies in, uh, to Japan and Asia yes. as well. And so after 1941, there was no more opportunity for surprise attack. Everybody knew what the score was. Japan was in a war. They, it wouldn't do any good to surprise attack the United States. They didn't knock us out. Germany had surprise attacked the Soviet Union. It didn't work to knock them out. So now we were in a war where industrial capability and manpower, in one year, the Axis had redefined the war. They had gone from having about 180 million people versus about 70, 60 million left, maybe a few allies if we count the empire in Britain, to 400 million people against them. And if you counted China and India, which had manpower that was used in various degrees on the Allies, you might have been up to a billion people. Right. And then if you look at GDP, they had gone from having a greater GDP than Britain to having a fraction of it, the Axis. So what, it, what was their, their race was, and they started to understand this, the race was superior morale, fer, we're more ferocious, we're more savage, we believe in blood and soil, we've got to knock these guys out before they can get going. And they almost for a moment in late 1942, if you look at the map from the, the Arctic Circle in Nor Norway to when they took Tobruk in summer of 1942, and from the Volga River in early 1942, the Wehrmacht was in the Caucasus Mountains, and they had climbed the, the highest peak and put their flag there all the way to the British Channel, and the Japanese controlled territory even larger from uh, the Aleutians to the Indian Ocean and from Manchuria all the way to off, you know, Wake Island. And then it ran out of gas because finally the Soviets, the Lend-Lease, the cooperation between the three allies, the industrial capacity of the United States, the overwhelming manpower, and the Soviet Union put 12.3 million people in uniform, and we put 12.1, and Britain put six, and Germany only put seven. So what you're seeing is they were overwhelmed. So suddenly, let's just take some names. Guadalcanal, late 1942. The 1st Marine Division can fight the Japanese veterans from China just as well, but they had much more support and logistics. Uh, El Alamein, it turns a tide. Stalingrad turns a tide. And after that... Kursk, isn't Kursk? In uh, 1943, turns a tide as well. But after Stalingrad, the, the Wehrmacht will not be able to mount an offensive. Stalingrad's and after Guadalcanal, the Japanese are not going to go on the offensive, and Midway as well. So then it was a question, what was the last two and a half years of the war? It was a question of the Allies, unlike the first time in World War I, no armistice, no negotiations. Unconditional surrender was announced at Casablanca Conference. So what that mean? It meant it's pretty hard to go into those countries and kill, capture, disarm 15 million Japanese, Italian, Eastern European, and German soldiers, occupy or destroy their um, 
homelands and change their political system. That was a diff that was what the last two wars were, uh, years were of the war about. That's very hard to, to impose an unconditional surrender, and yet we did it. Right. So in the end, <laughs> there's something almost a little unsatisfying about it, this notion that the axis expands by surprise, surprise, surprise. Suddenly everybody's wide awake. And then what finally permits the Allies to win the war is not better generalship, it's not higher morale, it's not superior or more noble systems of government, it's just industrial production. It's, I that's think that's not it, quite right though, is no, it? No, I don't think so. It, it was industrial production, and by that I mean 70% of the airframes were allied, 90% of the aviation fuel was produced by the United States. But the key is that when you had uh, the British Expeditionary Forces in North Africa, or you had the 1st Marine Division, or the 6th Marine Division, they fought as well as the Axis soldiers. But they, they fought like Axis. They learned to fight like Axis, but the Axis never learned how to produce like allies. I see. That was one thing. And then they had brilliant commanders, General Hama, Yamaguchi, von Manstein, Rommel, of course, Guderian. But we had, when Patton, and especially the second, I mean, Nimitz, Halsey, these people were almost as good, if not better, but at the supreme leader, Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill compared to uh, Mussolini, who was buffoonish, and Hitler was delusional, finally, and Tojo was just sort of an unimaginative bureaucrat. They had no strategic sense, and what that meant was the Allies did not get themselves into quagmires such as losing an entire army in North Africa, which they did, that was bigger than Stalingrad, or going into uh, the deep Ukraine and the Caucasus and losing the entire Sixth Army, or having the entire Italian army destroyed in North Africa. They didn't, when they had setbacks, they weren't. They were tactical they're mistakes. tactical mistakes. Things like Tobruk or a Bridge Too Far campaign uh, uh, at Arnheim, but not, or the bombing campaign in the first year, but they were not, elemental crisis that proved fatal. And they had so many uh, mo greater margins of error if they had have done something so stupid. But it's very hard to far fault Roosevelt and Churchill because they, they made most of the, the big decisions of the war in a correct fashion. All right, Russia, Victor. I'd like to spend a little time yes. on Russia because you spend quite a lot of time on Russia and you make the point that Americans need to know about it. I'm quoting you. As a result of the Cold War, the Soviet war effort is often not given full credit in the West for its near virtuoso destruction of the German army. Near virtuoso yeah. destruction of the German army. Explain that. Three out of four German soldiers were killed on the Eastern Front. And the price, we lost total uh, about 450,000, depending on how we calibrate the losses. In Britain, about 420 and 50,000 civilians. Russia lost. Soviet Union, 27 million people, civilian and soldiers. But they did kill three out of four Germans and they destroyed an army that was over three million people in, in strength. And it was a very strange partnership. We said, essentially, I don't know if it was so explicit, but we said, we will fight in Italy, we'll fight in North Africa, we'll fight in the Mediterranean, we will fly the skies of Europe and bomb, we will have four-engine bombers, we will fight the Japanese alone, we being the British and the Americans. Mm -hmm. We'll go to Burma, we'll go to the Pacific, we'll have the B-29 program, we'll do all of these things. But you're gonna be, you don't have to build a blue water neighbor, you don't have to have four-engine bombers, we'll supply you with 20% of all your needs. However, 
you're going to tie down and destroy the best army in the world, which the German army was. And they did that. After the war, um, Stalin, remember, cut a deal with every single person, every single party in that war. He had a non-aggression pact with Hitler. He had a non-aggression pact with the Japanese. He had a semi-one with Italy. He had an agreement with us, and he had an agreement with the British. He tended to keep his uh, word with the Axis, and he didn't keep his word with us. And, and so what I'm getting at is that there's a lot of reasons to be very angry at the Soviet Union. They would, the World War II would not have started had they not had the non-aggression pact with Germany. That being said, when well, today- we should, we should just explain. The non-aggression pact with Germany, the, the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop yes. pact. Of August 23rd, 1939. They, the, Hitler says, Hitler and Stalin agree they're going to leave each other alone yes. and they divvy Poland up. They, they hated, were, both hated because of the Versailles right. Treaty Poland and they carved it up and they made that deal seven days before they invaded. And then astonishingly enough, what's your view on this by the way, that yes. the only man that Joseph Stalin ever really seems to have trusted was Adolf Hitler. Stalin really did, was taken he by was, surprise we, when uh, Hitler invaded And him. Molotov said, famous quote, we didn't deserve this when he found out. And Hitler in turn said, if the war had been, if we had won, I would have hung Churchill, but I would have given a state to Stalin and let him, because he was a genius. They had a mutual admiration because they were very alike much alike in some ways. So historians, I'm quoting you again, historians still seek to sort out the degree to which the Soviets' catastrophe, 27 million dead, civilian and military, was a result of their own duplicity. Yeah. Well, how do you they, weigh, they what, had what do you mean them, by that? And how do you weigh well, just that? Just take one example okay. for, for sake of brevity. <clears throat> the Kiev pocket, they lost about 700,000 people by no surrender, not one step back orders by Stalin. So from June, of 1941 to December, they intentionally uh, ordered, I shouldn't say intentionally, they just ordered Soviet armies not to retreat. When, that, when withdrawing into the interior yes. was and the when only you, reasonable thing to do. And when you were dealing with people like von Bock or Guderian or Rundstedt who were masters in encirclement, they lost an entire four million person army. They lost 50. Because Stalin was a bonehead. Yes, 50 million people. Their population went from 180 down to about 130. They lost a million square miles. They should have been knocked. Anybody else would have been knocked out of the war. France would have been, I mean, they didn't do that to France, and France quit very, in six weeks. But Stalin, the Russian people were a different type of people. They were like used to adversity and worse than adversity. And they rallied, and then the United States and Britain su supplied them. And Stalin began to do something that Hitler didn't do. He said to himself, I've got brilliant commanders and Zhukov and Konyev and Hitler never understood what Rommel was trying to do in North Africa or what um, Guderian wanted to do. So he didn't trust his, he started to get more and more distrustful of his commanders and Stalin, who had been like Hitler and trying to be a virtuoso supreme leader, started to delegate and the tide started to change. But what I was getting at too is when we get angry at the Crimea and we should, or Ukraine, we in the West don't say, well, wait a minute. The siege of Sebastopol cost the Russians 150,000 people in World right. War II. And the Ukrainian pocket was 750,000. So they do have claims, at least psychological, mystic, I don't know what they are, but they have claims on these territories that are a little bit different than us vis-a-vis -vis Puerto Rico. And yet, 
were very defensive of the Caribbean. So I think we have to keep that in mind, how they view the Second World War. The Second World War, as I'm quoting you one more time here on Russia, Russia helped to save the Allied cause. Yes. Yet the Allied war effort saved communism. Yes, I think after the show trials and the Great Terror. These are the 30s. Starvations in the 30s. And the, especially the liquidation of the Soviet uh, officer class they had so weakened themselves and they had so lost international public opinion and the system was not working that what happened in 1989 could have happened in the 40s without a war but once the war was occurred the soviets took on the mantle of anti-fascism they fought heroically they united the people and they copied mass productive strategies of washington uh, and london and they retooled their economy uh, and they were very successful, and that gave them a cachet that they otherwise didn't deserve. I see. Especially after the war, you know, because we had a terrible propaganda. We had to say to the world, yes, Japan, uh, Germany, and Italy were bad. They started World War II. They were fascists, but now they're the good guys. And the Soviets' propaganda was the war's still going on. We're still liberating people from fascism, whereas the United States and our imperialist uh, enemies, Britain, uh, have flipped and they've joined the Axis. And that was very hard to combat in the late 40s and 50s. One more, while we're on the late 40s, one more question about the late, the late 40s and 50s. The, the Red Army sweeps into, as best I can tell, it's the biggest invasion from the East since Attila. Yeah. Yeah. So they sweep in and Red Army is in place in much of Eastern Europe and at Yalta, it doesn't matter. Is it true or is it not true that it really, Roosevelt surrendered Eastern Europe at Yalta, or is it simply the case the Red Army was already in place throughout Eastern Europe? Yeah, I think it was a lot. I think it was, Roosevelt was very naive, but if you actually look at the concessions he gave, he gave concessions out of naivete, and Churchill gave the same level number of concessions out of realism. And the fact was... We're not going to war again to push them back Not out. with 350 divisions, with T-34 tanks, American boots, American ponchos, radios. And remember, they, they broke every agreement. And one thing, the Germans call it the silent holocaust, because they had no uh, claim on anybody's sympathy, but 13 million Germans that had been in East Prussia, to take one example, or parts of what is now the Czech Republic, they walked home. And they'd been there for four or 500 years. 13 million walked home. Two million died. Walked home meaning? Back into... Back into what we would think of as Germany proper. And they lost 30% of their... I mean, Germany today has the same amount of people, 80 million, that they did in World War II. But nobody's talking about Lebensraum anymore. But they right. lost 30% of their territory. And that, and that was ceded to Soviet, pro-Soviet allies in Eastern Europe. And the Soviet Union was very um, careful that all of the land they stole when they were a partner of Hitler, the Baltic states and Eastern Poland, they kept and they said, if you want to be nice to the Poles and you take it out of Germany, you're not taking out of what we stole. And that was a tragedy that they came out, they came out a winner in geostrategic and geopolitical terms, they came out a loser in human terms because of the vast number of people who were killed. Right. Victor Davis Hanson, author of The Second World Wars, will continue this discussion in a second program. But for now, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge on the Hoover Institution. Thank you.